It sounds like a story from film or television. A man and his wife travel out west during the gold rush and end up becoming the richest couple in the west. Another much younger beauty enters the story and the rich man leaves his wife for this pretty young thing. The couple lives an extravagant lifestyle until they lose everything. This is the story of the Tabers, who made their fortune in silver in the late 1880s, and I have their story on the 103rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Let me tell you something. If you have a hot cup of coffee in front of you, or any nice beverage, you're doing okay. So now it's time for the local weather report. The temperature here in Chicagoland has gotten into the bearable range. The snow is almost gone, and sometimes it actually feels nice. Let me tell you folks, it's been a long winter. So today I have a rise and fall story with a lover's triangle to boot. It has a bit of a downer ending, but well, I was thinking I could do the Hollywood thing and make up my own happy ending, like they do in biopics all the time. Do you think I should do that? Start telling stories that are based on true events, but not actually the true event? No. I'd rather try to be honest. Of course, I would never claim that my words are 100% accurate, but I try. Now, this story is a bit long, like many are, and so I'll get right into it. But before I start, I want to say that if you hear a soft thumping noise in the background once in a while, that's because the cushion of my chair was bumping up against the table that my microphone was on, and I didn't realize it till I got well into the podcast, though I think I cleaned most of them up, but I'm sure a few snuck through, so I apologize. Now, pour yourself a hot cup of joe, and I'll tell you about the Tabor family of the Colorado Silver Boom. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Oh, gather round and listen to a tale of long ago. It's the story of a pretty girl by the name of Baby Doe. Now she had golden tresses and her skin was white as snow. And their eyes were flashing fire. Yes, that was Baby Doe. Baby Doe, Baby Doe, Silver Queen. Horace Austin Warner Tabor was born on April 6, 1830 in Holland, Vermont. He was one of five children. As a young man, he was trained as a stonemason. Our story begins when the 19-year-old Horace and his brother John were working as stonecutters for William B. Pierce at a quarry in Augusta, Maine. It was while working this job that he met Pierce's daughter, Augusta, and the two soon began a courtship. Augusta Pierce was one of ten children and the third of seven girls. She suffered from poor health during childhood. 
She had been fragile, and some claimed she only survived childhood by her strong determination. She was a debutante who was pampered while living in a comfortable middle-class home. She was also the cousin of Franklin Pierce, President of the United States. In 1855, Horace departed the Kansas Territory with the New England Immigrant Aid Company. The New England Immigrant Aid Company was an anti-slavery organization that had the idea of sending 20,000 immigrants a year to Kansas in an attempt to change the political power in the territory, which in turn would lead Kansas to becoming a free state. Horace stayed for about two years. Then in 1875, he returned to Maine to marry Augusta. The couple went west and settled in Riley County, Kansas. Augusta found this new world very uncomfortable as she wasn't used to things like living in a rustic log cabin, which had rattlesnakes under the bed, Native Americans begging for food, and an absence of reading material. There were things she had to learn how to do, things that weren't part of her privileged life back in Maine. Things like cooking and housework. It was while living in the cabin that she gave birth to their son, Nathaniel Maxey. Soon there were rumors of great wealth to be found in the form of gold in the mountains to the west. So after less than two years in Kansas, the family of three, along with two friends, packed up and moved to the Denver area, to a place called Buckskin Joe, Colorado. From there, they moved on to Central City, then to Canyon City, and eventually to a place called Oro City, a town that eventually became Leadville. Augusta wrote in her journal of the trip, as they passed by an area called South Park, I shall never forget my first vision of the park. I can only describe it by saying it was one of Colorado's sunsets. Those who have seen them know how glorious they are. It was in the Leadville area that Horace began looking for gold. Like most, he never found gold, but he did find some strange black dirt that turned out to be silver. He didn't find a lot, but he did find enough to make a comfortable living for him and his family. And it also allowed him to open a general merchandise store. It was Augusta who ran the store while Horace did the prospecting. She also made more income by taking in borders and doing laundry. The two worked well together, and between his mining and her store, they made a small fortune. Even more money came in when Horace was made the postmaster in 1863. Now, there was a practice at the time called grubstaking. Grubstaking was when a store owner gave miners food and supplies to do their thing with the agreement that they will share in the profits if gold or silver was discovered. More times than not, these were losing deals. Much to Augusta's anger, Horace began to grubstake miners. This drove Augusta crazy as she thought Horace was giving away the income that she had worked so hard to earn. You see, in the agreement, if the miners failed, they were not required to pay back the money. Augusta constantly nagged Horace to stop giving away supplies. But Horace hit the lottery when a group he staked for $60 worth of supplies discovered the little Pittsburgh claim, the discovery that started the Colorado silver boom. It was one of Leadsville's richest silver mines, and Horace was entitled to make a third of its profits. It instantly made the Tabbers rich, bringing them in something like $10 million, and that's in 1860s dollars. And Horace kept grubstaking other miners, and others paid off as well, like the Crystallite Mine and the Matchless Mine. 
The Tabbers were soon the richest couple in all of Colorado and maybe in the entire West. With his new wealth, Horace established newspapers, a bank, and the Tabor Opera House. Soon, Horace's interest turned to politics, becoming the first mayor of Leadville, and then in 1878, he was elected lieutenant governor of Colorado. He served in that post until January 1884. Now, as I researched the story, I couldn't help but think of the film Citizen Kane. In that film, Charles Foster Kane, as portrayed by Orson Welles, is one of the wealthiest men in the world due to a silver mine. He has a wife and son, and has a big political career ahead of him. Everything changes for Kane when he meets a young girl named Susan Alexander. For Horace Tabor, his Susan Alexander was a young lady named Elizabeth McCourt, better known as Baby Doe. At the time, the marriage between Horace and Augusta was already going bad. While they were both hard workers, Horace was more of a gambler and a dreamer, like his passion for grub-staking. And he loved having and spending money. He was flamboyant, always out buying drinks for everybody. He loved to entertain, which is one of the reasons he built the Opera House, which had a bar in the downstairs. He enjoyed being popular. Augusta was the opposite. She was more of a business person, practical, quiet, and reserved, and wasn't too happy with the way Horace was behaving with their new wealth. In many ways, their relationship should have been a good match, Augusta being the steady and practical voice of reason to keep Horace in check. But it didn't work out that way. Being more of a business person, Augusta thought they should diversify and make some safe investments for future security. But to Horace, this was Colorado, where silver was king. Why should they invest? Silver would always be valuable, and the cash flow would never end. After all, he thought, he had been working and toiling for years and years, and now he was entitled to enjoy himself. The two had many fights over money, and they slowly began to drift apart. Eventually, while Augusta kept living in their huge mansion, Horace began staying at the famous Windsor Hotel. It was said that, at this point, he began to have mistresses. Elizabeth Bonduel McCourt was born in 1854 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and grew up in a middle-class family in a two-story house. She was a beautiful child, and her mother, much to her father's chagrin, treated her as special. Mother believed her good looks were of great worth and excused her from domestic chores, as to preserve her skin and allowed her to have dreams as a future actress. At 16, she was fashionably plump, with curly blonde hair and large blue eyes. Things took a bad turn for the well-to-do family when a fire destroyed the family home and business. They lost everything. Suddenly, the family went from being in a nice situation to being very poor. Something Lizzie, as she was called by friends and family, didn't like. Lizzie was flamboyant and outgoing. She always dreamed of an extravagant lifestyle. In her late teens, Lizzie entered an ice skating contest. She was the only female entry, and to everyone's surprise, she won the event. But during her routine, something controversial happened. During a twirl, to the shock of all watching, she revealed a bit of her leg. Soon after, she was approached by many men, one of these was Harvey Doe, the son of a banker. 
Within a few years, the two were married. Lizzie was 22 years old at the time. Now, Harvey's father, the banker, owned a gold mine in Colorado and sent the couple out there so Harvey could run it. Harvey thought for sure the couple would make it rich in gold. It was in Colorado that the miners, due to Lizzie's looks, something like an innocent fawn, began calling her Baby Doe, a name that would stick for the rest of her life. Unfortunately, her husband wasn't very good at being a boss, and things started to go bad. She did her best to keep him from failing, pitching in, often dressing in male mining clothes and working directly in the mine. This was considered quite scandalous, and Baby Doe began to be ignored by the other women in the area. The relationship began to sour. Baby Doe might or might not have had an affair, but Harvey began drinking more and more and working less and less. He began going to brothels. Sadly, Baby Doe gave birth to a stillborn baby. Harvey was nowhere around. She eventually caught him in a brothel, and this was too much. She filed for divorce on the grounds of adultery, which was granted in March of 1880. She began working at a clothing store, something she found dull and boring, just like it was when she did the same job back in Oshkosh. She began to use her good looks to have an affair with a number of rich men, in what some might call being a gold digger. Eventually, she met the richest silver king in Colorado, Horace Tabor. The story goes that she originally met Horace to ask him for a loan of $5,000, which he apparently gave her. We can only assume that she never paid it back as the two quickly became lovers. At the time, Horace was 51 and Baby Doe was 26. And I should mention that Maxie, Horace's son, was 27. In 1881, Horace secretly arranged for a divorce from Augusta. When Augusta first learned of this, she refused to honor the divorce. She begged him not to do this, reminding him of all they had gone through together. When she eventually signed the divorce papers, she wrote under her signature, not willingly. At the time, there were no provisions for alimony or that sort of thing, so basically, Horace kept all the money he was worth and gave Augusta the mansion that they had lived in and the apartments across the street that they owned. This would be her source of income from then on. Almost immediately, Horace married Baby Doe, and the two began to spend huge amounts of money freely, beginning with a lavish wedding and for a wedding present, he gave her a $75,000 necklace. The wedding was a huge affair in Washington, D.C., which was attended by some of the biggest names in the United States government, including the President of the United States, Chester A. Arthur. But it was just the men. The wives refused to come. A successful man who leaves his wife of 20 years for a young beauty wasn't something they really wanted to be a part of. Now, you might think that this is just a situation of a rich man with a trophy wife and a young gold digger using the older man for his wealth. And I know it looks that way. But as we will see, the two were very much in love and were devoted completely to one another. Almost right away, they began spending money like crazy, building a huge mansion that took up a whole city block. It had a hundred peacocks wandering around the yard, and the landscape was adored with nude statues. 
which immediately offended Baby's highly proper female neighbors, so much so that they hired a dressmaker to make clothes to cover the statues. They would throw lavish, expensive parties. They traveled, spending as much as $10,000 a day. They were spending more money per day than Horace was earning. And the scandal of his new wife pretty much ended any future political endeavors, though he attempted to run for governor three times in 1884, 1886, and 1888. All three times he was unsuccessful. They had two children together, both daughters. Elizabeth Bandua Lilly, who was born on July 13, 1884, and five years later, Rosemary Silver Dollar Echo was born on December 17, 1889, and I kid you not, that was her real name. It was said that the babies had diamond-studded diaper pins. They were one of the five richest families in the country. Now, Baby Doe was looked down upon by most of the respectable women in the area. They thought she was shocking, showy, and scandalous. So Baby Doe began to become friends with many of the actor and actresses who played at the Grand Opera House. They were the type who accepted her outgoing personality. Baby Doe was hailed as the Silver Queen of the West, and Horace was called Denver's Grand Old Man. For almost ten years, the family lived the high life. They continued to spend extravagantly until... In 1893, President Grover Cleveland repealed the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. Silver had already been overmined, and with the repeal of this act, the government was no longer buying the metal, using only gold to back its currency. The price of silver plummeted. The same year, the United States entered its biggest depression of the 19th century. Horace Tabor, unfortunately, had put all his money into silver, even making investments in Mexico and South America. He never diversified as many, including his first wife Augusta, had advised him to. Suddenly, he had no income, and the problem was to make some risky, and some would say crazy, business ventures over the last few years, he mortgaged almost everything, including the Tabor Block and the Tabor Opera House. Now broke, Horace could do nothing when the creditors came calling. Baby Doe began selling off her jewelry to keep the creditors happy, but that wasn't enough. They lost everything. To Horace, he always thought of this as a temporary situation. He figured eventually the price of silver would rise and things would return to normal. It never did. At one point, Baby went to her brother, Pete McCourt, and asked him for help. He told her he didn't have the money to help, and even if he did, he wouldn't give it to them because they would just squander the money away like they always did. Baby Doe would say later this was one of the biggest disappointments of her life. They were flooded with lawsuits from creditors, and soon their utilities were shut off, forcing them to live in a big, dark, cold house by candlelight. But to Baby Doe's credit, she stuck with Horace even when, in 1896, they lost their home. Horace, through the help of a friend, got a job as a postmaster, and it was just enough money to pay for the small apartment the families now lived in. At this time, Baby Doe was still in her early 40s, young enough to find another rich man to grab onto. There were many rich men out there who would have been happy to have her as his mistress. 
but she never left Horus. And then in April of 1899, Horus began getting sick. He was terminally ill with appendicitis. He died on April 10th, with a son, two daughters, and a wife by his side. His funeral was a grand event. Many of those friends of his that had turned their backs on him when things got tough suddenly were there to pay their respects. Baby Doe received telegrams by the hundreds from mayors, governors, and senators. A funeral parade, led by the state militia, police, and firemen, traveled down Main Street in Denver with thousands of spectators watching. He was buried at Calvera Cemetery. But unfortunately, he left Baby Doe and his two children with nothing. Baby Doe wandered the streets of Denver, lonely and heartbroken, with her two daughters by her side. One was eight and the other was fourteen. Now there's a legend, most likely apocryphal, that on his deathbed, Horace told Baby Doe to hang on to the matchless mind. Many doubt this is true because, for one, Horace was in a coma most of the time he was sick, and also, he had sold off the matchless rights sometime earlier. The legend goes that Baby Doe believed it and counted on the mind's return for the rest of her life. Now, for a while, she took on housework to make ends meet, never accepting the advancements of other men who would gladly have provided for her. She was devoted to Horace even after he was dead. Now, I've read a few stories that say she spent quite a few years trying to get back control of the matchless mind, looking for investors. She thought if she could get the matchless operational again, things would go back to the way they used to be. And as time went on, her mental state slowly declined. She ended up moving into an old wooden shack in the back of the matchless mind in Leadville. Some call her later years her 36 years of repentance, living an almost hermit-like lifestyle. The owners of the mine would have been perfectly within their legal rights to have her evicted, but they never made an attempt to do so. This might have been out of pure kindness, or maybe it was the shotgun she greeted visitors with that kept them away. Who knows? Her later years were pretty sad. She existed on the smallest amounts of food and ended up dressing in things like burlap sacks. Yet she refused the charity of friends and strangers, though many found a way to provide for her just the same. She would often write IOUs to shopkeepers, IOUs that she intended to pay off, but the shopkeepers knew fully well she would never do so. Often they would accept worthless pieces of ore as trade for groceries and just throw it away once she was gone. Others would drop off care packages anonymously outside her door. Slowly, as time went on, she slipped more and more into madness. She kept a bizarre journal about strange spirits that she would see in her dreams. These clearly showed her feeling of guilt over her past life, and they terrified her. One such said, June 13th, 1927. After I went to bed, I saw visions. I saw devil's faces, and then close up on the right stood a tall, thin man with a long, narrow, thin head. He had the most terrible devil's eyes. Oh, so terrible. No earthly power could describe them, and the rest of his devil's face was hard to look at or think of. His head was narrow and long. All of it, face, body, all of him was a nasty yellow color. 
all the same shade, a doll's color, so nasty. His eyes blazed, he was the real devil. He glared at me a few seconds, then he vanished. He was wild with anger and rage. In February of 1935, neighbors noticed that no smoke was coming out of her cabin. They went to investigate. They found Elizabeth McCourt Baby Joe Tabber dead, frozen on the floor. Most assumed she died of a heart attack. And for one last time, Baby Doe made the newspapers. Wealthy people in Denver raised money to have her body brought to Leadville. Then her casket was sent by train to Denver, where she was buried next to Horace. The Matchless Mine site is listed on the Park Service National Register of Historic Places. It is also the location of Baby Doe's cabin, where Silver King Horace Tabor's second wife, Elizabeth Bonduel McCourt Doe Tabor, lived out her last years. Known popularly as Baby Doe, her frozen body was found in the cabin March 1935. The cabin and the Matchless Number no. 6 Hoist House are open for guided or self-guided surface tours. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go, you might be wondering what happened to the other four. Of the two daughters, I know that Silver Dollar left at a young age and had a pretty depressing life, dying horribly at the age of 35 in Chicago while working as a burlesque dancer. I won't go into her death, but it wasn't a very pleasant one. The other daughter, Lily, apparently got married in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and had three children. She seemed to have a fairly normal life. Horace and Augusta Tabor's only son, Maxie, had a pretty normal life also, from what I can tell. He managed the hotel across the street from the mansion where his mother lived and eventually got married and had a family of his own. And for Augusta, the first wife, while never remarrying, became very rich by making some wise investments. She devoted much of her time and money to the Pioneer Ladies Aid Society and the Unity Lunitarian Church of Denver. She died a wealthy woman in California in 1985 at the age of 62. Of course, each of these stories could be their own episode. One last thing, the cabin that baby Joe spent her last 30 plus years in and died in is now part of the museum at the Matchless Mine. Now how about the ending credits? You know, we at the Psycon Network don't have a gold or silver mine to get our money. We need help from listeners like you. You can be one of the good people and support us by visiting Psycon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm. And look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find many amazing podcasts at PsyCon.fm. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff though I don't post all that often. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show, but you don't have the coin to help financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those things really help. And remember, links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. 
I'd like to thank Brucky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every other week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to everybody who reposts this on social media. You don't know how much I appreciate that. Anyway, I'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling story. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee.